0: Marcus. So, um, one quick announcement. On March 3rd at 5.30 p.m., we're going to be having a guy's night. That'll be an uh, evening. we have a speaker. We'll have a, some kind of beady, beefy, meaty dinner. We haven't quite got that exact meat figured out, but it'll be a, a hearty meal, a great speaker. We'll be talking about uh, leadership principles for every man. So, if you'd like to go to that Just RSVP to the office, and we'll get you signed up. So I was uh, taking a class one summer, and if you've ever taken summer classes, they're horrible uh, in college. You know, everybody else is having fun, you're there in a classroom, slogging it out. So to help get through that in the morning, I would, I'd have a a breakfast, you know, with, with a cereal I wouldn't normally have, something real sugary and sweet and... So I went to the Bears Den one morning. That was the place where we had the the, the breakfast and things. I I went there and I, I went through the line. I got my cereal. I sat down, poured the milk on my cereal. I was watching TV, got a big spoonful, put it in my mouth, and I immediately knew there was a problem. Something with that milk was very, very wrong. And I looked down at the bowl. And there's these big white chunks sitting on top of the cereal. And then around it, there's kind of this like clear greenish fluid. It was bad. And I had a mouthful of this stuff, and I didn't know what to do with it. You know, I'm just kind of looking around to see if I can just spit it out. It it was disgusting. Now, when I was going through that line, nothing on that milk carton indicated to me that there was anything wrong with what was inside. The date was fine. The label was fine. The carton looked good. So I just trusted it. I wasn't paying attention. But within a moment, I knew that there was spoiled milk inside that once I took a taste of it. So not unlike that milk and that milk carton, there are a whole lot of imposters in the world today. They look good on the outside. From the outside, you can't tell there's anything wrong. As a matter of fact, they are charismatic. They are great speakers, but on the inside, what they are pouring out is absolutely spoiled. It is rotten. And sometimes you don't know it at first. Sometimes you don't know it until it bites you that what you've just taken in is something totally, totally wrong. As a matter of fact, the Pew Research in May of 2015, did a survey of American evangelical Protestants to find out what they believe. To the question of, are there other religions that can lead you to eternal life, 57% said they believe other religions can lead you to eternal life. When asked, are you absolutely certain you believe in God, only 63% said yes. When asked if you believe in heaven, only 72% said yes. Those are scary Statistics. There's a lot of bad teaching that seeped its way into American evangelicalism. And there's never been more books, more movies, more podcasts, more videos, more ways you can take in tons and loads of information about God. And you have got to sift through it. What I want to talk about this morning is how do I expose false teaching? How do I expose false teaching? The passage we'll look at comes from Titus Chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Titus chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. It's a longer reading. If you need to sit down, uh, feel free to do so. But just so you know, I'm sick and I'll be standing the whole time. <laughs> Sorry. Feel free. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You may be seated. We're starting this new series. It's five weeks. We'll go through this small book of Titus, and it's uh, called Talk the Talk, Walk the Walk. And the book is geared towards correcting false teaching on this small island of Crete. And as you heard, it was a serious problem. This will take us to the Easter season. And there on Crete, there were truth teachers and there were false teachers. And it was essential that this man, Titus, charged with this task of getting the the place cleaned up, do his duty, was left there by Paul. This morning, I'd like to talk through three questions as we approach our subject. We'll talk about both false teachers and truth teachers in both in both cases we'll talk about what do they teach how do they live what do we do about it what do they teach how do they live what do we do about it so first a little bit of background on this book and uh, if you're familiar with 1 Timothy Timothy had a similar charge as Titus Timothy though was in a different place Titus was left there on this island of Crete by Paul to deal with a crisis situation of false teachers There were people there propagating wrong ideas. Uh, In all likelihood, there were some Jews there teaching you had to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul quotes a Greek poet down there in verse 13 when he says, a certain one of them, he's talking about a, a poet from there. In fact, one of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He's got no kind words For the Cretans, and you may know the term Cretan as being a negative term about somebody. It's lingered on even to this day. That was from a poet named Epimenides of Crete in the 6th century B.C. And Titus himself was a Gentile convert. That came from Galatians 2-3. He traveled with the apostle Paul in Galatia. Uh, He was a helper to troubled church in Corinth that was also suffering from a division. And he was thought of very, very well in his community. Uh, he became the first bishop of Crete. He stayed on that island and continued uh, making sure the truth was taught. And his successor, a man by the name of Andreas Cretensis, uh, eulogized him. And his eulogy of uh, Titus was recorded. He said this of Titus. He was the first foundation stone of the Cretan church, the pillar of the truth, the stay of the faith the never-silent trumpet of the evangelical message, the exalted echo of Paul's own voice. That was Andreas Cretensis quoted by Eusebius. So he was stalwart. I mean, who wouldn't want that as an epitaph to be said about them? So let's take a look now about the content of the teaching of both the good and the false teachers. We'll Look at the false teachers first. And again, Paul took great measures to spell out What it was these Cretans were like. There was a belief among them that Zeus was buried on their island, as a matter of fact. And that was just one of the lies they propagated. And Paul called them out. Even the word uh, in Greek, kretizo, means to lie, based on the name Crete and Cretan. So by the time we get down to verse 14, 13 and 14, Paul says, this testimony is true therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. There's a reason for the rebuke that they be sound, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And he says, this testimony is true. Yep, they're liars. They're beasts. They are lazy gluttons. He says they're devoting themselves to Jewish myths. And what is that? This is a Problem, again, that had to be dealt with in Crete. Paul told Timothy about this as well in Ephesus. And then down in in, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, he explains what that means. He says, to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. He said they're unprofitable and worthless. This genealogies business, there was speculations about the origins and the descendants of certain persons. In other words, some of these Jews were trying to draw more honor upon themselves by saying, well, I'm a descendant of so-and-so, fill in the blank, some person well thought of. And Paul says the void commands of people who turn away from the truth. And He's, t- he's talking about rules that were given by mere men. The people were saying things like, I know what the Bible says, but. You see, that's what happens when truth is rejected. When people turn away from the truth and and live by quote-unquote truth from earthly origin, which is not necessarily truth at all, but the false teachers rejecting truth, they did it then and they do it now. And we see it around us. I mean, when a culture starts rejecting things like gender, that God made men and women, when people start putting political ideology above their theology and pick churches based on political positions opposed to the truth of God's Word, we live in a time of postmodernism when truth is relative. And you can have your truth and I can have my truth and we can all have our own truth. False teachers have rejected the truth. These truth teachers, what about them? They're in verses 1 through 4. And look at the words Paul uses to refer to them. He talks about they have the faith, the faith of God's elect. The elect are those who have put their faith in Christ. He talks about their knowledge of the truth. He talks about they have a hope of eternal life. So the truth teachers are passing on knowledge of the truth. So what is this knowledge of the truth? Do you know that in the past 2,000 years, you know there's tons and tons of Christian doctrines out there, but do you know that there are primarily just seven doctrines that someone has to believe, we would say, to be considered a historically orthodox Christian? I mean, there's a lot of them out there, but really there's just these seven that determine if someone is a Christian. Now, I'm going to go through these seven, and uh, I want you to know that the presentation today is going to be available. We're going to make hard copies of it. Don't feel like you need to write all these down. They'll be available to you. Uh, There'll be a link in the comments section on the YouTube video, or if you want to pick up a hard copy, they'll be available uh, in the office, so I'm going to zip through Seven core doctrines of Christianity in just a couple of minutes. Okay, so here they are, the big seven. Trinity, depravity or sin, the person and work of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, Bible, church, restoration of all things. Now, what do those mean? We believe in a trinity, a triune God, one God in three persons. Say that with me. One God in three persons, and those three persons have eternally coexisted. They have always, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, have always been and always will be. They had no starting point, and each person has different roles, different functions. And there's only one graph I really like of the Trinity. It's this one. Each person is God, and none of the other persons are the other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. All three God, one God, three persons. You say, Chad, I don't understand that. That's okay. That's okay. We believe it to be true. Next, depravity, mankind's fall resulting sin. Things went bad very early on. Everything was affected by the fall of man. Everything bears the taint of sin, and we're all born totally depraved. All have sinned. There is none who are righteous, no, not one. Jesus, we believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is unique among the persons of the Trinity, persons of the Trinity, because He's fully God and fully man. 100 percent God, 100 percent man. What did he do? He took the penalty of our sins. He was our substitute. He bore the, pe- he bore the penalty of, of, of the wrath of God on himself. Salvation, that is by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. Faith is the means by which we accept that gift. We trust by faith. Bible, it's inspiration authority. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit working through men. It was 100% the work of the Holy Spirit. He used 100% of the man. And the Bible is the final authority in all matters. We trust the Word of God, even when we don't necessarily understand it. Again, we trust what the Word of God tells us. In the church, all Christians everywhere for all time. It's comprised of all redeemed Christians living on earth, the earthly representation of God. It exists for the worship of God, fellowship and evangelism, and to partake in communion and baptism. And then the future. We believe in the final restoration of all things, that someday Jesus is going to come back, and one day Christ will physically return. He'll serve as judge and king. All people, Christians and non-Christians, will be resurrected. Christians, the saved, resurrected to eternal life, and the unsaved, resurrected to eternal condemnation. That's the big seven. To not believe in one of those big seven. Is to be outside of what Christians have always believed. All Christians everywhere for all time. Now, Chad, I don't know if I can remember that. Yes, you can. Here's how you remember it. Repeat after me. Repeat after me. This is Super Bowl Sunday. Touchdown pass wins Super Bowl. Cheerleaders raw. Say it with me. Touchdown pass wins. Super Bowl, cheerleaders, raw. It's ironic. I didn't plan. You know, I have always used that ever since I first learned these seven. I've been using this for years. And only this past week when I I realized it was Super Bowl Sunday. That's the truth. (laughs) That is the truth. That's how I remember these seven. If smarter people could do it a different way, that's how I remember it. Now, notice what wasn't there. Did you see things like baptism by immersion? I'm saying this is a Baptist about to immerse seven people here in just a few minutes. You didn't see something about the age of the earth. You didn't see anything about election. I think if we're going to understand something about doctrine, not all doctrines are equal. Here's what I mean. I always put... Christian doctrines in four categories. You've got those that are essential for salvation. In other words, if you don't believe it, you're not saved. You've got some that are essential for orthodoxy. If you don't believe it, then you don't believe right teaching. Then you've got these other two categories that are important but not essential. And then you've got a final category of some that they're just not important and they're not really essential. And our Christian doctrines fall into these four categories. So, think about the ones that we just went over. What's essential for salvation? Depravity. You have to understand your sinner. You have to understand who Jesus was and what he did for you. You have to understand that salvation only comes by grace through faith. Then there's a second category. Now, the Trinity is a tough one, I'll tell you. I almost put it over the first two columns. Because I don't think that a new believer has to be able to quote the Nicene Creed. At the same time, I don't think you can deny the Trinity and be a Christian because you have to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. God is three persons. The inspiration and authority of the Bible, the church, and then the restoration of all things. Now, those are all; those are the big seven. But there's still more. We've got a third category. There are some that are important, but I would say aren't as essential. Immersion versus sprinkling for modes of baptism. I think that's important. Most of your denominational differences fall into this third category. If you want to know why we have Wesleyans on one hill and Methodists on another and Presbyterians on another and Baptists on another, it's that third category. I'm part of a community of pastors in town called Pastors United in Christ. We all acknowledge we are brothers in Christ, but we differ on that third category And they're important. I believe they're important. I believe in baptism by immersion. I wouldn't be a pastor of a Baptist church if I didn't. And yet I don't push those into those other columns. And then finally there's a a fourth column. Not important, not essential. (laughs) What color should we make the carpet? Where should we put the PN? Now, churches have split over these things. And right now, there are 200 different kinds of Baptists in the United States. Now, Paul is calling out those whose teaching is anything contrary to Scripture. And I would say anything to the left of that yellow line, Paul is saying if anyone engages in any of those, they are a false teacher. They have to be rebuked sharply for what they're professing. In other words, not you have to discern what is it that actually needs rebuked. What puts someone in that false category? They dealt with the first major argument in the church was in 325 A.D. It was called uh, Arianism. And the Arians believed that there was a time when Jesus was not. And they all convened together and they figured out, no, 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 Jesus has always been. They dispelled that heresy of Arianism. There was never... Because they knew that... The, that Jesus had always been. That's right there at the beginning of John. So we have to know the content of the teaching to determine false teachers. It is essential. We have to know the spoiled milk theologies that are out there. Secondly, well, how do they live? How do they live? And as we, we read through this passage, Paul is raising up uh, the beliefs of the elders. He's saying these are the truth teachers. These have to be the ones that know the truth. But these qualities he's arguing for uh, should be found in any of us, those who adhere to sound Christian teaching. But he's he's emphasizing the role of elder as the truth teachers on the island of Crete. He said they have to be uh, teaching this way. And look at how he describes these two groups of people. You have the the elders, the truth teachers, on the left. You've got the opponents, the false teachers, on the right. Elders, not rebellious. Opponents, rebellious. Elders, they know how to manage your household. The other guys were house upsetters. Their doctrines are actually upsetting households. Blameless versus abominable and evil. Unbelieving versus believing. He said these opponents are beast-like, whether the elders are not quick-tempered. The elders were not covetous. They didn't covet what others had. The others were covetous. They had a material that they gains they wanted. The elders loved good. The others appeared to have no good works. One held firmly to the truth. The other attended to falsehood. One had right teaching. One had false teaching. One had sound beliefs. The other, he said, had to be led back to that which was sound. So he's contrasting these two groups. One as being truth teachers. One as being false teachers. And you see then how you believe determines how you live. How you believe determines how you live. And you live out your truth and these people are living out what they believe. It's true. If my, if my truth says I can be whatever gender I want, then I'll live that out. If you don't believe that a God created man and woman, then you'll live that out. Even if you don't consider yourself transgender, you'll you'll vote in that direction. It just stands to reason. And what you believe will determine what you do. I've kicked this phrase around before. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Simply put, if I believe what's right, then I'll do what's right. If I take in right teaching, I'll live out right teaching. But you will become what you believe. Before we start excoriating anyone, it would also do us well to ask why our own life doesn't match up with what we profess to be true. I've got to ask myself hard questions all the time. I have to ask myself, Chad, why, where are you finding your value? See, if I find my value in how many people attend First Baptist Church, you know what I'll do? I'll compromise hard things that I think might push people out the door. And I cannot do that. Am I living out what I believe to be true? So we have these teachers that have a a content and a false content of what they teach. They have a way of living that seems right to them, these false teachers. But then we're called to something. What do we do about it? What do we do about it? And like I said before, we've got to know those seven. Know those seven. I want to say that again together one time. The phrase we can use to remember this. Touch, say it with me. Touch, down, pass, wins, super bowl, cheerleaders, raw. Trinity, depravity, person and work of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith. Bible, it's an errancy. Church, thank you. (laughs) Cheerleaders, church, all people everywhere for all time, and raw, the final restoration of all things. you got to remember what word goes with what part of the (laughs) phrase, too. That's important as well. you got to be able to differentiate between Christianity and something else. Then secondly, differentiate between bad teaching and false teachers. See, this is very important as well. And what I mean is just because somebody may, maybe they said something in a book, maybe they said something in a video once, That doesn't necessarily mean that that person has to be immediately, like, canceled. Right? We live in this cancel culture. And do you know who started the cancel culture? Christians! We are the best at canceling. And what I'm saying is, pause before you cancel somebody. Are they repeatedly violating what was in those two columns to the left, or they just say something that maybe you don't agree with? There's a huge difference. Are they consistently outside of what we consider Christian orthodoxy, or did they just say something in a way that we would disagree with? That may be bad teaching, and that needs to be called out as well, but that doesn't mean you're going to call them out immediately as a false teacher. You've got to make some decisions here. John Piper's done a lot of work in this area. It's very helpful. But then finally, we are called to to call out false teachers. We are called to call out false teachers false teachers look at what paul says again in verse 13 this testimony is true therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith and look at that verse the goal is that they could be restored to a sound faith restored even with the sharp rebuke the goal is to restore them to a a sound faith Now, there are false teachings and false teachers out there that we need to outright reject. We outright reject Mormonism because it holds to a belief of three gods. We don't believe that. They believe Jesus is not eternal. So so I would call out Mormon teachers, that is false teaching. It's the same way with uh, we reject the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus, when he was on earth, was not God but human only. We reject that. That's false. Then there's another guy. You know, there's, there's this string of uh, these prosperity gospel guys Kenneth Copeland. And one of the many flaws of this belief system is their view, they have a warped view of sin. There was a theologian named Ken Sorrows. Uh, he observed how this prosperity gospel claims, uh, I think I've got, see, yeah, both physical healing. And financial prosperity have been provided for in the atonement. That's what, in other words, Jesus died so you could be rich. That is what they hold. Kenneth Copeland made a statement. He said that the basic principle of the Christian life is to know that God put our sin, sickness, disease, sorrow, grief, and poverty on Jesus at Calvary. That's wrong. That's heresy. It's a wrong view of sin. He's adding to depravity, and therefore, he's outside of what we would consider essential for salvation. It's a major misunderstanding. There was another uh, proponent of this view on TV, TBN named John Avanzini. He said something very interesting on TBN. He said, Jesus had a nice house, a big house. Jesus was handling big money, and he wore designer clothes. He said, he said this on TV. Now, I hope you can hear this and, and see it as ridiculous. It's a major misunderstanding of depravity and sin. It's easy to see how a warped view of the life of Christ could lead to an equally warped misconception about the death of Christ. So to put this all together, no bad teaching, lovingly correct bad teachers. You've got to think about what is the degree of the influence they have? Where are they at? Are they influencing people here in our body? You know, I recently came across an incident which I think is, there was a, there was a well-known Christian named Tim Challies who I think has got, I got a lot of confidence in his opinion about things. And he was, he initially handled the situation in his own estimation very poorly. He set out to correct some bad teaching. He was critiquing up a popular writer named Ann Voskamp. I've, I've quoted her myself, and he raised some concerns about one of her books called A Thousand Gifts. He said this, he said, and I quote, it could well prove to be dangerous to some readers, the threat of mysticism influenced by the likes of uh, Nguyen and Manning and Willard, the language of sexuality and ecstasy. He said, these are genuinely troubling, and I would agree. There's a line in that book that's troubling. After he issued that review, he got an email from Ann Voskamp almost immediately inviting him to her family farm for dinner. They lived close to each other. And he said as soon as he saw her name, he said he had a twinge of guilt and remorse. All of a sudden, she wasn't just a name on a book cover. A real person and a sister in Christ. And he summed up his own critique of her. He said... He could learn some things. He said, I did poorly here, and I can see that I need to grow in my ability to critique the ideas in a book, even while being kind and loving to its author. He said, There was a reason for the shame I felt when I saw that name in my inbox. He said, I put effort into reading the book and understanding and critiquing it, but listen to this, and this is so important, but no real effort in showing love and respect for the author. I had assumed poor motives and an arrogance and thoughtlessness had squelched useful discussion of the book's strengths and weaknesses. Do we call out false teaching? Yes. Is it our duty to call out false teachers? Yes. Do we always want to do it in a way in which we show charity and love to restore the person to sound teaching? Absolutely. All of those are true, and we have to hold all of those uh, if we are going to call out bad teaching and false teachers. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, how you speak to us. We thank you for sound doctrine. We thank you, God, that you have taught us in your word, taught us to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. And God, I pray that you'd help us to spot that spoiled milk theology, Lord, that our people would know it when they see it. They would know it doesn't smell right. And God, I pray that you would bless our baptism coming up in the next service, that it would bring glory to you as people proclaim their faith through this ordinance of baptisms. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, so ordinarily, I pray with people up here at the front. However, I've got to run and get changed for the baptism. hope you'll stick around for that at 1030. Have a wonderful week, and we will see you soon.